0: Alright, we have one assignment due today, homework number two. Uh, so that covers the material that's going to be on the second exam next week. And that is due by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. When I mean, again, when I say due today, if you're submitting it on D2L, you can submit that up until 6 o'clock tomorrow. Um, I will try to get look, look at those and get them back to you, but I don't see you guys again until the exam. So we don't meet next Tuesday, so no class next Tuesday. No classes Monday and Tuesday next week for break. So don't forget that. Also, if you have a Monday, if you have a if you have a class that normally meets on Wednesday, next Wednesday is a Monday. If they haven't made that clear to you, if you happen to have a lab that normally meets only one day a week, uh, next next Wednesday acts as a Monday just to keep everything even. So hopefully, your instructors are telling you that it doesn't affect us because we meet on Tuesday and Thursday, so it doesn't affect us at all. But I thought I'd just pass that along as well. Um, Unlike last time, I'm not going to release the answers right away since we have a little bit more time before the exam. So if you're running late and you don't get it done by 6 o'clock, if you don't have it to turn in to me now, if you're still working on some of the questions and you run late, you can submit it late for partial credit over the weekend. It won't be full credit after 6 o'clock tomorrow, but it won't be a zero either. So, if you're running late for any reason, I will be able to put that, I will put the answers up at 6 o'clock Monday. Once I do that, I can't accept homeworks anymore, obviously. Once the answers are out, I cannot take, the, take any homeworks. So, if for some reason you don't have it ready by 6 o'clock tomorrow, then uh, feel free to submit it over the weekend for partial credit. Remember, the earlier the better because that deduction does increase o- over time. If you're only a day or two late, Up to 48 hours, it's only 10%, so it won't crush your grade. You can still get most of the credit for that. So don't forget to get that in uh, for me. And then the solar observations. Next week, we have a bunch of things due on the 11th. Um, The solar observations, I'm just looking again for a copy of your data sheet. You don't need to send. Some people did send photos. You don't need photos or anything of any observations unless you want me to look at what you're doing. But I'm just looking at your data sheet, what, how many observations you have so far. For credit, I'm looking for one new observation that was successful. That's all I'm looking for for there. I will take a look at them, how accurate they are, if they're making them close to the right time, etc. I'll take a look at all of those things for you and give you some credit for, for that. Uh, then the exam is what we'll be doing next time we meet, next Thursday, um, along with the lab. So it'll be the exam in the lab again, just like the last time. So, that will cover Chapters 5, 6, 15, and 16. Uh, just the same as the, last, as the last one. Remember how the questions were broken up. Chapter 5 is one unit. Chapter 6 is one unit. But Chapters 15 and 16, your book splits the Sun into two chapters. That's still one unit. So, they're, they're weighted the same as the, as the others. So, um, what we have uh, so what you have. The other thing I wanted to remind you is don't forget that if you want to use the key point sheet, that was the one thing that I did not emphasize enough the last time because I know when only a couple people came with that prepared. Is that if you go into the lessons up on D2L, up here, there are within each module there are links to the. Oops, turn that on. Links to the textbook. Links to the lecture slides, if you want the lecture slides that I'm using, they're all linked to there. Uh, Video lectures exist for right now through the next couple of chapters. I'm still working on this class, so I don't have all the video lectures created for the remainder of the class. But if anybody's been using them, uh, you'll see them for the next few chapters into this unit and then they will disappear. Uh, And then there's review materials. If you click on review materials, let's go into that. There are the key points in this case. So if you want the 2 for the Sun, there's a link for Chapter 15, a link for Chapter 16. They're just PDF files. You can download, print those out. You may write any handwritten notes you want on them. So if there's something you want to remember that you're sure I'm going to ask, you can write, you're welcome to write notes on those. So anything you want to hand write on those, you can print out and use the ones for Chapter 5, 6, 15, and 16 for this exam. So print those out, use them for when you're studying, write any notes on it, anything you're sure you're just going to blank out on the exam, and hopefully that will help the exam grades a little bit. Hopefully you'll remember, remember those, get, get a chance to get those uh, put up there. Um, if you have not taken them, I have all of the review quizzes for this unit as well ready. So you also have those which are extra credit, so you're not required to use them. But if you want to, you can get up to three points extra credit, one for each of the three quizzes. There's three quizzes available there. You can get up to one point extra credit for each of them, depending on how you do on the quiz. They're also the same question banks that are used for the exam questions. So for the true, false, and multi- for the, sorry, for the multiple choice part of the exam, I'm using the same question banks there. So it's a chance to review, see some of the types of questions that you might see on the exam and get a little bit of extra credit. People last time who took them may have gotten you know, a point and a half to two, I think up to maybe two and a half points extra credit, which certainly is not going to hurt you at the end of the semester. So I recommend looking at those, but the one thing I really recommend is make sure you get those key point sheets, print those out, take your notes on them and have them here. You can use those, you can have those out during the exam. So that will hopefully help you a little bit with anything you think you know, think you might actually blank out on during the exam, or that you might not recall. Um, there's also review games. Again, those are only for the last couple chapters. I don't. I'll try to have some ready for the last. But if you want to play with those, they're again the same types of questions, but they're just in different formats. You can. Uh, go through flashcards or other types of games using some of the material from the chapters. So they're there for review sources for you, but you're not required to use any of them. But I strongly recommend again the key points and try the review quiz. They can't hurt you. If you get a zero on it, you get zero extra credit, which doesn't hurt you. If you get a five on it, you get a half a point of extra credit on that quiz. So it's not going, it certainly cannot hurt you even just going through and answering those. So that's what's coming up. Again, one thing due today, bunch of things next week. It looks like a lot, but really, just one, hopefully you've got another solar observation, turn that in to me, and the review quizzes. The big thing, of course, would be the second exam. Questions? Yes? Okay, so I'm not going to be here, so the, are you going to have a test in the test center? Um, talk with me after, and we'll get that set up. Okay. We'll get that set up for you. And let's see, because I want to work out the timing, okay. so yeah, but let's, talk, let's get with me after or during the lab section and we'll, we'll get that straightened out. Um, let's see, okay. No qu- other questions? Let's go ahead back to our picture. Um, one second. Alright, okay, so picture of the day for today is actually titled The Opportunity After the Storm. This is actually an image of Mars taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So this is not on the surface of Mars. The Reconnaissance Orbiter, as it states, is an orbiter around Mars and it maps the surface. This is one of the images that it's taken and the little box here is highlighting an area where the Curiosity Rover, uh, sorry, the Opportunity Rover is currently located. So, right in here, in fact, you can almost see the tiny dot at the center would be where the Opportunity Rover is located right now. Opportunity Rover has been on Mars exploring for like 14 years now. Been there for a long time and we're hoping that it's still going to be active. What happened on Mars this past summer is that there was a massive dust storm. Now these happen every few years on Mars, so opportunity's been through them before. But this was a pretty strong one. And a dust storm on Mars isn't like a little dust storm that lasts here on Earth, where you get the big dust and then it's gone in a day or a couple days. These last months. So for several months, Mars has been enshrouded in dust. It's slowly starting to clear up. And it's actually noted that right now, as the time of this image was taken a couple weeks ago, Mars was getting about 25% of the light that it's used to. So even at this point, as the storm is clearing, it's only getting one quarter of the light. Now, the problem with that is that opportunity depends on solar panels. It's got great big solar panels. If you turn off the sunlight, have it perpetually cloudy, you know, a deep, dark cloud here, cloudy day here on Earth for three months, solar panels don't do very well. Right? There's a little bit of light there, but not enough to power the thing, power the machine. So they hibernated it, put it in hibernation, sort of shut down everything except for minimal, uh, minimal energy, and hopefully waiting for it to clear. They've been having trouble trying to get it to come back online. So this is knowing that it's still there, but trying to get a hold of it is the problem. And of course, they don't know if it's, you know, this dust storm does spread dust around. So, was it able to uh, put material on the dust, the solar panels? Are the solar panels all, you know, covered with a layer of dust now, which is also inhibiting, right? If you put dust, if you have solar panels and you put a little bit of dust on them, it's going to again inhibit how well they're able to gather sunlight and produce energy. And that's what Opportunity depends on. So over the coming weeks and months they're trying some different maneuvers, seeing if they can get any communication back. If not, we got a 14 year uh, lifespan out of something that was originally scheduled as a 90 day mission. All right, so we did, did pretty well. So even if it is gone, um, that's, that happens. Uh, the, it, Opportunity had a companion rover named Spirit. Which has been, which lasted, oh gosh, about six or seven years, it got stuck in a sand dune. Right? Couldn't move, couldn't, turn its, couldn't get his solar panels adjusted to the right direction, and it eventually died as well. So, still got a number of years out of them. Um, there is, you can hear about the Curiosity rover, it's still there, it's still exploring. Um, it is not as affected by that because it doesn't depend on solar panels. It has a little nuclear generator, not like a nuclear power plant, nuclear fusion that we just taught, we talked about, nuclear fusion and fission. It just depends on the decay, the energy by the decay. of So it has a little container of radioactive isotopes. As they decay they generate heat which can generate electricity and it uses that for power. So it's not, wasn't as dependent on the Sun. So it's still going and still working. But this one is kind of uh, hopefully coming back, because even though you've gotten 14 years worth out of it, if you can get a few more, that's great. Uh, the one other picture I wanted to show, just to give you an idea of what this is like, uh, I found a simulated image of what the Sun looked like as the storm came in. So these are simulated images of the Sun. These aren't actual pictures of the Sun from the surface of Mars, but you know, this would be what you'd normally see. Sun, just like we'd see here on Earth. As this storm got denser and denser, nothing. So no sunlight, solar panels don't work very well. And get for a day or two, big deal. Right? You shut down for a couple days, turn back on. your batteries will last for several months. This started this summer. And it's not, un- not atypical for, how- for storms on Mars to last that long. But when you're like this, you know think of that as that night, not necessarily rainy, but just that completely dark cloudy day and how dark it is out there, you know The solar panels, after a number of days of that, are not going to be doing very well. All right, questions? All right, well, we're going to head off and get started on the next section, which is Chapter 17, as we move out of the kind of introductory material. and we, st- we started on the Sun which was an introduction to stars. But now we want to start talking about stars themselves Let me make sure I'm getting chapter 17 is the one we want. So we're going to go ahead and start on this and get going on talking about the stars themselves. Uh, the next unit is actually three chapters, 17, 18, and 19. Uh, but you'll see that each of them is short. These are much shorter, these are shorter lectures than some of the ones we looked at earlier. So I had a lot more material in some of those earlier chapters. But this one uh, talks about the brightnesses. How do we measure the brightnesses? And what do we what do we understand from the brightnesses and the colors of stars? What are they going to tell us? So this is the introductory, then what we're going to do after these uh, chapters 17 through 19, then we start getting into stars themselves. How do stars form? How do, they wor- how do they work? How do they go through their lives? That'll be our next big section. So what we want to start here is talking about brightness and there's two, t- two things that we can talk about. We can talk about an apparent brightness and an absolute brightness. An apparent brightness is how bright the star happens to appear to us in the sky. Go out at night, look up at the stars. You see a bright star, you see a faint star. Well, the brighter star is apparently brighter. It doesn't mean it really is brighter because there can be a lot of other, there can be some other things involved. Right? We don't see the distance when I just look at stars. I can't tell you how far away they are. So a bright star could be a really bright star. Or it could be a fainter star that's just really close to us, and this faint star could be a really bright star. It could be putting out a lot of energy, but it could be many times further away. When we just look at the stars, we can't see that. I can't tell you. You can go out and look at the stars. They all look like right. they're on that big celestial sphere. They're all at the same distance. You can't judge distances. But the only thing you have to go by is that is the brightness for right now. So how bright do they appear to be? And that's what I mean by an apparent brightness is just how bright it appears. So it does depend on the distance. Is the star really faint? Or is it just really far away? So two stars that look the same brightness may be very different. One could be a very faint star that's real close to us. One could be a really bright star that's a hundred times further away. But if things could balance out, they could look the same brightness in the sky. We don't know that. So apparent brightness really easy to measure because all you got to do is look at the stars, but doesn't tell you as much. The, apparent, the, the absolute brightness is sometimes what we call the luminosity. This is really how much is energy is being emitted by the star every single second and technically it's at all wavelengths not just visible light but it's really how much energy the star is putting out. This is something really important to know because that that tells us a property of the star. This doesn't. The apparent brightness doesn't tell us any property of the star. The luminosity does. It tells us really how bright that star is. In order to measure it we can give numbers but they're gigantic numbers with large exponents and that you know, our minds don't wrap themselves around those, we compare them to the sun. And sometimes you'll see this used, uh, L for luminosity, and a circle with the dot on it represents the sun. So if you see L with a little subscript, the solar subscript, it just means solar luminosities. You'll see it for luminosities, or mass, or diameters, radii. It's just a convenient way to be able to measure those. So it's one way that we go about measuring them. So, the units are solar luminosities and that's convenient because it then compares how much they how they are bright they are compared to the sun so if i say a star has a luminosity of 10 right we we understand 10 we can count to 10 i know that number it's 10 times brighter than the sun if we take a star that has a luminosity of one tenth, it's 1/10 the lumin I mean it's it's easy to compare so that's why we use those units if i gave it in some weird Big uh, physical unit, you could do it, but it would be 10 to the 26th or 10 to the 30th power. It would not be something that you could understand. And if, if I could give you two stars with those big numbers, you can't compare them easily. So numbers like this are very make it a lot easier to compare. So in terms of quantifying these, how do we actually get these, measure these? We use the magnitude scale. So magnitude scale can be a pain. It was developed a couple thousand years ago by Hipparchus, uh, one of the early uh, Greek astronomers. And what he did was to look at the stars, count them, and just to group them. Here's the group of the brightest stars. Those are stars of the first magnitude. They are the greatest stars. They're the brightest. So stars of the first magnitude. The next grouping of stars below that were stars of the second magnitude. They were the next group of relatively bright stars but not as bright as the greatest ones. Then you had third and fourth and fifth right down to the edge of what you could see with the naked eye. The stars that you could barely see were called stars of the sixth magnitude. So he grouped them into six groups, one through six. One being the greatest, brightest, six being the faintest that you could possibly see. And remember this is long before telescopes so no telescopes involved. Only what you could see with your eye. The problem with this, and what can cause confusion sometimes, is that it also means that the system is backwards. Normally, if you say something is three feet high versus six feet high, right? six feet is higher than three. Not the same with magnitudes. The brightest objects are the smallest numbers. First magnitude is the brightest, sixth magnitude is the faintest. So they work backwards. The smaller the number, the brighter the star. We don't use that for temperatures, right? Higher temperature means hotter. H- uh, distances, longer dist bigger number means a longer distance. When you talk about magnitudes, the bigger the number gets, the fainter the object is. And it just happens to be how Hipparchus set them up, which, which makes sense, right? These are the brightest stars. They're group one. next is group two, three, four, five, six. However, now when we actually put them together and make more accurate measurements, then we could say that the star has a magnitude, not just of one, two, three, four. we might say it's 2.5 or 2.3, or 2.286 as we get more and more accurate measurements, but we still use the system that Hipparchus developed. So it is a way to make those measurements but it is backwards. So just remember, the big thing to remember when you look at magnitudes the bigger the number you see, the fainter the object. The smaller the number you see, the brighter the object. The other thing is that we say that it's not linear. If we talk about temperatures or distances, if something is one mile away versus two miles away, we know that it's twice as far away. Right? Something that's ten miles away compared to something one mile away is ten times further away. Magnitudes don't work that way. Magnitudes are a second magnitude star. Not only is it fainter than the first magnitude star, but it's not twice as faint, it's two and a half times as faint. So each magnitude difference, the difference of one magnitude, is a factor of two and a half times. Why did Hipparchus pick up such a strange number? It's just the way our eyes register light. So it was all done by visual observations and it was just done naturally the way our eyes measure measure light. Now it's not the only thing that uses that. Uh, If you ever hear of earthquakes, the Richter scale, Right? There's a magnitude 8 earthquake and a magnitude 9 earthquake. Well, it's not that the 9 is just a little bit worse. It's a lot worse. So it's the same type of scale that they use for things like earthquakes. So it's done that way and it's what astronomers have been using for thousands of years. So they're going to keep using it. Why are you going to have to redo all of these measurements that have been made for thousands of years? But when new students are looking at it, it's like, why? Why are we doing things backwards? And why is not a sixth magnitude star, even if it's going to be fainter, why isn't it just six times fainter, instead of it turns out a hundred times fainter? So that's what I wanted to kind of put across with those. And we can look at this in a little graph here. This shows the scales because now we've been able to expand that scale. Hipparchus just made very rough measurements. He said these stars are the brightest stars. He didn't differentiate that they were all differing brightnesses. Some were a little brighter than others, so what he called first magnitude stars were just the brightest group. The ones that when you go out and look out at night, they're the ones that stand out to you. Really bright stars. But some of them were brighter than others, so as we actually started to make measurements and give values to these magnitudes, we would say that, well, maybe this magnitude, actually the brightest star, wasn't even a first magnitude star, which is closer to the star Betelgeuse, but was like star Sirius, which is actually now has to be a negative magnitude. Negative, smaller than positive numbers, so it's a brighter star. So when you see negative magnitudes for things like Sirius, it's even brighter. Now he did not include the planets in this, but we can now add them in. So if you add things like planets, Jupiter, Mars, Venus are actually even brighter than those and have negative magnitudes. So again, the thing thing is, smaller numbers, even if that goes negative, means a brighter object in the sky. A bigger number, now that we have telescopes, um, if you have binoculars you can get down to about tenth magnitude. Your eye can see sixth, and that's sixth magnitude from a really dark site, which doesn't exist any place, really any place on Earth almost anymore. but now with a pair of binoculars you can see things fainter. You can see things many times fainter than your eye can because it's able to collect more light. If you use a smaller telescope even just a small, relatively small one-meter telescope may sound big if you're just buying a little telescope, but you know, a one-meter telescope gets you down to about 18th magnitude. Four-meter telescopes get you down to about 26. Hubble and some of the other large telescopes get down to 30, 31. Now remember that doesn't sound like a big difference from six. You're down to 31, but each of those magnitudes is two and a half times fainter. So if you want to go with what you can see with your eye to what you can see with Hubble, you go from six to seven. That's two and a half. Seven to eight is two and a half. You multiply those together. You multiply two and a half times two and a half times two and a half times two and a half. Twenty-some times. That's a pretty big number. It ends up that Hubble can see things that are a lot fainter many times fainter than your eye can. So each of those magnitudes. Now I'm not having you go through, I don't have you memorize like all the details or how to calculate all the difference. The two that are important I put up here is that each magnitude represents a factor of about two and a half in brightness. So a first magnitude star is brighter than a second magnitude star two and a half times brighter. The other one that's easy to, that helps, that's relatively easy to remember is that if you take two and a half and multiply it by two and a half, and then again, and then again, and then again, five times, you get right about a hundred. So five magnitudes, the difference between a first magnitude star and a sixth magnitude star, would be a hundred times. So it gives you an idea, if you're going down from, you know, what your eye can see to Hubble, that's a hundred times a hundred, a hundred, a hundred, a hundred, so you're multiplying a hundred times a hundred, 100, times 100, that's how many times fainter things like Hubble are able to see. So those are the two that I might ask you something about. I'm not going to have you calculate. You can do calculations to get differences between smaller values. You know, what's the difference between a first magnitude star or a magnitude 1.3 and a magnitude 1.8. I'm not having you go through all that, but the two I'd like you to know are that each magnitude is a factor of 2.5 and, and that 5 magnitudes is a factor of 100. Now at other wavelengths, things make a little bit more sense. Um, we actually use a measure of the luminosity, a measure of how much energy we're receiving it can still be the apparent lumi- it might be the apparent luminosity. Things like radio waves do not have magnitudes assigned. Things like gamma rays, we don't assign magnitudes. We use just a measure of the intensity, how much light is striking our detector. So it works out. It makes a little more sense in terms of uh, brightnesses and luminosities. Everything works out the way we're used to. Bigger numbers mean lots more intensity means that the object is brighter. Uh, Sometimes we do use it with part of the infrared and ultraviolet though. They're pretty close to the visible and we can actually measure infrared magnitudes just like we do for visible. We can measure ultraviolet magnitudes. Typically, it's used for the visual. It is used in the parts of the ultraviolet and infrared, but many of the other wavelengths, x-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, do not use this. They don't use this magnitude scale. They'll use other measures of the brightness. There's still ways to measure the brightness, but they use other methods. Alright, so brightnesses. Everybody loves magnitudes now, right? Astronomers don't even love the magnitude system, but it's, again, it's one of those things that there are records and recordings going back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years now. So if you want to change the system and come up with a nice new system, you could do it, but then everything old, you'd have to do conversions to to that. Just like, right, nobody in the U.S. wants to switch to metric. Right? Because you'd have to learn a whole new system, you'd have to change a whole new system, it would involve massive changes. So it's one of the, one of the problems with trying to change this, you know, even though it just applies to generally you know, a small group of astronomers, it still is a major effort if you really wanted to change that. The other thing we want to look at here are the colors. So what color do stars appear to be? The, the color of a star is related to its temperature. A hotter star is emitting more short wavelength light which means that it's going to look blue. It's emitting more short wavelength light relative to the longer wavelength. So blue is a short wavelength, red is a long wavelength. If it's a hot star it emits a lot more blue than red, well what are our eyes going to see? Our eyes are going to see the blue because there's a lot more blue than the red. If it's a cool star it's emitting more red than blue so our eyes, not going to see the blue as well, we're going to see it as red. And when we look at stars like this, you can actually see, if you look at images of the stars, you can see very distinctly what are the hot and what are the cool stars. I hope you can see that some stars here, these ones, have a reddish tinge to them, a couple there. But next to it right over there is a star that has a distinct blue tinge to it. So. If you look at those, you can see some differences, and looking just at the color tells you roughly the temperature. It doesn't give you an exact number, there's ways to actually go about measuring that. Remember Wien's Law, right? One of the things that's in this unit uh, that we just finished up. Wien's Law tells us that the peak of the spectrum depends on the temperature. The higher the temperature, the shorter the wavelength where that spectrum is going to peak. So shorter wavelength means blue, so higher temperatures would be blue. If you made stars even hotter, they'd be brightest in the ultraviolet. If you had really hot stars, some really hot stars put out more energy in the ultraviolet than in the visible part of the spectrum. They're still going to look blue to us because we can't see ultraviolet light. Right? So all we see. What do we see the most of? Well, it's going to be blue and violet is what they're giving out and our eyes are going to see that as a blue color. A very cool star Some of the coolest stars give off light in the infrared. Most of their light. But we can't see infrared light with our eyes so we would see them as very red stars. So that's how Wien's Law comes into this. Uh, The color, the other thing I wanted to mention is that the color does not depend on the distance. And we'll come back and talk about this in a couple of chapters. But the color does not depend on the distance. The brightness does. So if these stars are moved further away, they're going to look fainter. If we have a star that's closer, it's going to look brighter just because of its distance. What we have here is that the color does not depend on the distance. But it is affected by dust. And when we start looking at interstellar dust, I think in chapter 20, a couple chapters from now, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, it actually can make stars look red too. So there are some other reasons that can make stars appear red if we're looking at them through a lot of dust. Dust will make stars look redder. Dust is real good at absorbing and scattering out the blue light, making what remains coming through look red. Same reason a sunset looks red. Sun doesn't change its color, it's still the same light coming through, but the blue light gets all scattered out so the only light coming through as you're looking at the sunset is the red. So how do we know what's going on in this image? How do we know if that's just due to temperatures or due to dust? And for the most part we can see evidence of the dust. We can tend to see that there's dust there, there's other evidence as to what it's doing. And we'll, get, we'll look at that in a little more detail coming up in a couple of chapters. But this gives you only a rough idea. It'll tell you a star is hot, a star is bright. I'm oh, sorry, a star is hot or a star is cool. It doesn't tell you, you know, what the temperatures are of each of any individual star, which is something astronomers would like to know. Not just that, oh, that's a hotter star or that's a cooler star, but we want to get a measurement of that. And what we use is, for, to do that, is what is called the color index. The color index is used to get an actual temperature. We can use this to determine the temperature. And what astronomers do is they then measure the light that comes to the star through a set of filters so they have filters they are the typical set is u b and v that's a standard set there are other ones there's there's there are r and i and a couple others but these are this is the main standard set of filters that are used all it means is that instead of just taking a picture of the star counting how much light is coming from it every single second now you put a filter over that, and you only let in a specific wavelength of light, a specific range of wavelengths. In this case, you might let in just, some, just a certain section of the ultraviolet light, just a certain section of blue, or just a certain section of visual or the yellowish-green light. So it's visual because that's where our vision peaks, where our vision is the best. Uh, But those are the ranges. So it's not all of the blue light, it's just a certain range of blue light, it's just a certain range of ultraviolet. And then we can measure their magnitudes in that. You measure how much light is coming through, that can be converted into a magnitude just like the magnitude scale that we use. Instead of telling how bright it is overall, you get a magnitude that tells you how much light it's putting out in the ultraviolet. You'd get one that's turning how bright it's putting out and how much energy it's putting out in the blue, and how much energy it's putting out in the visual part of the spectrum. So if you measure that at those wavelengths, then you can take the difference in those two magnitudes. So the standard one that is used is looking at the blue light. How bright is it in the blue? How bright is it in the visual band? So you you measure the brightness in this band here and this band here. How much light is it putting out in the blue versus the yellow-green? And you can measure those magnitudes. You subtract them, and that gives you a number. Because now you have a magnitude. And now when we do magnitudes, when we do them today, again, it's not just 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. I can measure them accurately. I can say it's a 1.38 magnitude. So we can really measure that more precisely. Hipparchus just did general. Here's this group of stars. And there's these 50 stars that are the brightest stars in the sky, and they're all magnitude 1. Now this next group is all magnitude 2. Now we've split them down. So instead of just being first magnitude, it's 1, 1 .1, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. Now we can even say 1.11, 1.12, 1.13. We can get a better measurement of them. And if we subtract those two values, that'll give us another number that tells us the temperature. It's what we call the color index. And if you get a very small value, a very negative value, it means a hot star. So a very small value, when you subtract the blue magnitude, take the blue magnitude and subtract the visual magnitude, then you get a very hot star. A positive value, a much hotter value, higher value, means it's a much cooler star. So just looking at the numbers tells you hotter or cooler, but the actual number that you get tells you the temperature. Astronomers can then take a conversion. They can say, okay, this had a color index of 0.32, that means such and such a temperature. Or it had a color index of negative 0.1, that's a much higher temperature and we can get the numbers for that. So this is a way of actually not just saying it's a hot star or it's a cool star, but saying it's this temperature, that the Sun is 6,000 degrees, but this other star is 18,000 degrees and this other star is 3,000 degrees. We can actually measure those more precisely just by looking at the brightnesses of the stars. And it's only the apparent brightness that matters. How much light that we're getting from it. We don't need to know anything else about it. So it's very useful for being able to get direct measurements of the temperatures of the stars. All right, questions? It's a little bit on colors and temperatures. Let me just put the summary up there. Um, again, what we went through. We talked about apparent and absolute brightnesses of the stars. Apparent, the one we can see very easily. Absolute, ones we have to do some work. We have to know something about the distance in order to get them. The magnitude scale. Great fun. It's backwards, and it's not linear. It means again, it does not. It changes depending on the. Uh, amount. So two and, it's two and a half times between each magnitude. So magnitude one versus magnitude two, two and a half times brighter for magnitude two, one. Magnitude two to magnitude three, two and a half times brighter for magnitude two. So it's not the way we're used to measuring temperatures, right? If it's fifty degrees or hundred degrees, you know it's twice as hot. Or if it goes down to twenty-five degrees, you know it's tw- two times co- twice as cold. But ma- the magnitudes do not work that way. We can use the color of a star, just to pick just the color in an image, or the color in the sky. Actually, if you look at Orion in the morning and you've got a pretty good uh, good, sight, good eyesight, you may be able to see that the star in the body in the upper right, one of the brighter star up in the upper right corner, is red. It has a red tinge to it. It actually is a very cool star. The star in the lower Sorry, upper left, lower star on the lower right hand side, down here, would be a hotter star. You're probably not going to see it as blue with your eye, because your eye just doesn't see blue very well. But it would look white. Definitely, you definitely could see a distinct color difference between that one star in the upper left and the other stars. So if you're up early in the morning, Orion's out nicely early in the morning, if you get up at you know, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning before sunrise, you can actually see, you can try to see that. Um, And then we can use the color index that I just kind of talked about as a way to get the exact temperature. How do we measure that the temperature is something precise, some precise number? We can get that exactly. Alright, so let's see if we can get through, we've got a little bit more time before lab to go through and try to finish up most of chapter 17 here at least for you. Uh, The other thing that we can look at, we looked at the temperatures, we looked at the brightnesses, is we can look at the spectra. The brightnesses and the temperatures only give us overall values. So they don't really give us any great details. Sorry. Am. They don't give us any great details. The spectra, when we split the light into its component colors, gives us a lot more. So this is how we actually classify stars. How do we determine different types of stars? All stars aren't the same. Our, our Sun is one type of star but there are lots of differences and those differences depend primarily on the temperatures and the masses of the stars. And what we will see is if we look at those stars, we spread their light out into its component colors and we look at the spectral lines like we did in the lab last week. You look at the spectral lines, they're different depending on the star. So not all stars give you the same spectral lines. So when we look at certain temperatures, a star like our Sun right in about here, which happens to be right about here, shows some hydrogen. This is the curve for how strong the hydrogen lines are. It shows some metals. Again, metals are anything heavier than hydrogen or helium. And it shows the different types of metals, whether they've been ionized or not ionized. That's the kind of lines that we would see in the Sun. But the composition of the stars is all the same. Every single star that we'll look at from really hot stars to really cool stars are all made up of hydrogen and helium. Their spectra look different not because their compositions are different, not because they're made up of different things, but because their temperatures are different. So the visible lines that we see, I mean, the composition is all exactly the same. There's some slight differences, but if you look at stars for the most part they're about ninety percent hydrogen, number of atoms, nine percent helium, and maybe about one percent everything else. That 1% can have some variation. Some stars have a little more carbon than others, and some might have a little more of other elements. But overall, the, the, the amount of material is about the same in each case. So the lines depend on the temperature. And that's kind of what the graph is trying to show here, is that here's how strong the hydrogen lines are. If you hit the right temperature, right here in this class, the hydrogen lines are going to be really, really strong and then they're going to be really dominate because not only are they strong but there's also lots of hydrogen there to excite 90 percent of the atoms are hydrogen so when you hit right here about all you're going to see are hydrogen all you're going to see are the lines of hydrogen. However if you get cooler as you head towards cooler temperatures this is at about 10,000 degrees as you go down towards the Sun at about 6,000 and towards cooler stars at 3,000 the hydrogen lines disappear doesn't mean that there's no hydrogen there. It means that the temperature is not right to excite the hydrogen. Hydrogen needs a certain temperature, a certain amount of energy to kick. Remember how they produce the lines. The electrons get kicked up in the energy levels. It takes a certain amount of energy to get the hydrogen line up, to get the electron up there to form the hydrogen line. So if you have a really cool star, all those hydrogen atoms are sitting there with their atoms, with their electrons in the ground state. There's not enough energy coming from the star to get them to jump up to give off the lines. So the hydrogen is invisible. It's still there but it's not seen. Not that it's not there, there are other methods we have to use then that depend on the temperature to really calculate how much of everything is, in the, is within the atoms, but within the star. But the hydrogen lines themselves again are something very Uh, will decay, will get weaker and weaker as we get towards cooler temperatures because we can't excite the hydrogen. We can't give it enough, we're not giving it enough energy to cause it to give off its lines. Cooler stars, or hotter stars, what if you make it too hot? Well, here you're really exciting that hydrogen. If you make it hotter, shouldn't you be exciting it more? Yeah, but you're exciting it too much. Once you start ripping the electrons off, and the hydrogen is ionized. Remember ionization, you take an electron away. All you have is a proton there with no electrons orbiting it, and it doesn't give off any lines. There's no electron associated to give off any lines. So if you make things too hot, really hot stars are not going to have anything either. They're not going to show strong hydrogen lines. And the variations that you see here, things that are harder to excite than hydrogen, like helium, Helium doesn't like to do anything. It's the most stable element that exists. So it takes a lot of energy in order to excite helium to give it, give it helium lines. By the time you get to the Sun, the helium lines are really, really weak. But if you go towards hotter stars, you do have enough energy and you'll start to see helium lines. If you get to cooler stars, you'll start to see things like metals and you'll start to even see things like molecules. Water, carbon dioxide are examples of molecules, things where you have more than one atom bound together. Those can't exist in hot stars. Hot stars, really hot, things are moving around fast, the molecules get ripped apart. So if a molecule tries to form, it immediately gets ripped apart and we don't see any lines. In a cool star, we start to see those molecules form and we start to get lines of molecules. So various different types, it really, what the key I want you to get here is that it depends on the temperatures. Now, we have classified stars, and we do this um, by what we call the spectral class. And this was started back in the 1880s. Uh, Wilhelmina Fleming was one who did some of the very earliest classifications, and what she did was look at all these stars, and she classified them based on the strength of the hydrogen. So we saw the hydrogen line there, we knew what it was, we could see it in all these stars, And she grouped them into groupings, you know, here's the class that is the strongest hydrogen lines. Here's the class that are the next hydrogen lines. So the strongest lines were class A, then B, C, D, E, F, and and so on down to M M or so, I believe, at the time. So just classified them by something that made sense, by something that we could easily see. However, we found out a decade or so later, that it really was depending not on the strength of the hydrogen line. It was not anything that was an intrinsic property of the star. It didn't tell us they were made up of more hydrogen. It was really telling us the temperatures. So Annie Cannon in the 1890s redid this, redid the Wilhelmina's work, and changed the classifications to be based on the temperature. So when we look at the spectral classes, and the primary ones are these seven here, O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. So that is our list of spectral classes based from the hottest, O stars, down to the coolest regular stars, which are M stars. O stars can have temperatures of 30,000 degrees or more. Our sun's about 6,000, five times hotter than our sun. Cooler stars can go down to about 3,000 or even a little less, so less than half the temperature of our sun. So our Sun is somewhere in the middle middle of that range. Our Sun is actually classified as a G star here. And what the table is showing you is, again, what color the star would appear. So you get stars looking from very blue into red, depending on their temperature, what those temperatures are. And then here, what you might see. What kind of things would you see in that? In a very hot star, you're going to see very weak hydrogen. Again, not because hydrogen isn't there but because there isn't, because the temperature is too hot for the hydrogen lines to show up. When you get down to cool stars, you're going to see almost no hydrogen for the same reason. The temperature is now too cool and none of that hydrogen is being excited. This is the basis, the original basis, of the classification that is used today. We subdivide it now, so just like we did with magnitudes. Hipparchus gave us 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We've subdivided it so that You can do a magnitude 1.5 or 1.6. Well, we've subdivided the classification. So now you don't have a star that it's a b star or it's an a star, but we put a number after it. So you can have b0, b1, b2, b3, b4, b5, b6, and so on, down to b9, and then you have a0. So you can actually subdivide each of these into ten classes. So we subdivide them more, and we've also added. Just like we added to the magnitude scale, we added to the classifications as more types of stars are discovered. And those include some of these. There is a class W for really hot stars, which we call Wolf-ray stars. They are extremely hot stars with emission lines. Most stars show absorption lines. These ones actually have some emission lines. So they must have some gases around them that are being excited enough to glow that we can act enough that we can actually see emission lines. Sun's corona gives off emission lines but you can only see them if you're looking at the corona. So these stars might be hot enough and have enough material around them that they're able to give off, they're able to actually see the emission lines over the immense distances. So they are tremendous uh, in terms of being able to see emission lines. There are also a couple classes called C and S which are carbon stars. These are what we call red giant stars, evolved stars, that have extra carbon in their atmosphere. They're not 90 percent carbon in their atmosphere, but instead of the carbon being a tiny fraction of a percent, it might be you know a little bit higher. It might be two, three, five times higher than the regular ab- carbon abundance, which is really small. But there's excess of carbon. There are also classes L, T, and Y, which are relatively new, which apply to brown dwarf or failed stars. So these are actually much cooler than the M stars and these would be temperatures that go down 2,000, 1,000 degrees. Really, really cool stars. Uh, Classified as brown dwarf stars, which I'm going to mention a little more about in a minute, but they are stars that are so cool that we're actually starting to get not just molecules but dust, particles beginning to form in the atmosphere. And that makes them really hard to be able to detect. How are we doing? Uh, We're gonna have to stop for lab in a second here, so let me go ahead and let me do the brown dwarf stars and then I'll talk about, I'll hold over the measuring properties till next time. But what I want to show here, just as I mentioned brown dwarf stars, is that if you have a mass less than about 0.08 times the mass of the Sun. 0.075 to be precise. And again, M with the little Sun symbol below it just means masses of the Sun. So these things are really low mass compared to the Sun. Still really high mass compared to a planet. They never become hot enough for the, for the proton-proton chain we talked about last time. It can't begin. So they don't become hot enough to get high enough temperatures. They stay under 10 million degrees. Therefore, no nuclear reactions begin, and we call them failed stars. They can however fuse small amounts of deuterium. They don't make the deuterium, but deuterium that formed with them. If you remember, deuterium was hydrogen with one proton and one neutron. That fuses a lot easier than hydrogen at about a million degrees. So they're able to do that, and it kind of makes this distinction between what do we mean by a star versus a brown dwarf, which is in between, versus a planet. A planet is not, like Jupiter, does not have enough mass to be able to even fuse deuterium. A brown dwarf would be able to fuse deuterium, but not hydrogen, and a star is something that's able to fuse hydrogen. So we have a differentiation between those. If the mass is less than about 13 times the mass of Jupiter, then you can't even fuse deuterium, and this is what we classify as a planet. So sometimes you look at Jupiter as being close to being a star, it's not. You need to find 12 more Jupiters, Worth of material to add to it, to get it to even be a brown dwarf star, at which time you still need a lot more mass to be able to get it up to be a star. So Jupiter is nowhere near being a star and is very definitely in the realm of planets. So I'm going to stop there so we can work on the lab for the rest of the time, and then I will pick up here in what, a week and a half, I think? Not not next week because we're doing exam and lab, but then the following Tuesday we'll pick up and finish uh, chapter 17 and go on to 18.